Hello and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Mahesh. And I'm Henry. And today we have a guest with us who we are super excited about, Hans Taparia. I'm excited too, Henry, and to tell us a bit more about him, we've got our production manager, Richa, in the studio with us. Thanks for being here, Richa. Tell us all about Hans. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to have Hans on our episode today. I'm actually a student in one of his classes, Sustainable Food Entrepreneurship, and I think this is a great opportunity for him to share his story around founding Tasty Bite, trends in the food space, and being an entrepreneur. Yeah, sounds great. So uh, without further ado, let's get started. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. Today we are sitting down with Hans Taparia. Welcome Hans. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here, Hans. We're really excited to talk to you about food, entrepreneurship in general, and uh, the work you've been doing over the last few decades. Um, you know, one of the things we did when we were coming in was talking about our 30-second pitch. So we'll give you a little bit more than 30 seconds, but tell us a little bit about yourself um, and some of the work you're doing right now. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so essentially, I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. Um, went to college uh, here in the U.S. I was at MIT, met my co-founders there. Uh, helped co-found a business called Tasty Bite, which became one of the largest natural organic food brands uh, in the U.S. Um, and over the past five years, have um, have had a full faculty role here at NYU. So, where where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your sort of your background and um, what what brought you to Stern. I had the great fortune of going to ten schools growing up, uh, so moved around a lot. My parents are immigrants; they moved here from India in the late '60s. I was born in the '70s. I was born in Chicago, um, suburbs of Chicago, but my father, who's a physician, had this adventurous spirit around him and uh, just wanted to check out new places. And um, Chicago felt cold, and so he said, why don't we go west? And we went to Vegas, and we realized Vegas wasn't necessarily the greatest family town, so we <laughs> went to uh, we went to the Middle East, which um, uh, was quite the opposite, the polar opposite. We went to the country of Qatar for about a year uh, where he thought he would practice. Um, that didn't work out so great for my mom. So we came back to the U.S. and we went to West Texas. And we were vegetarians growing up in beef country and oil country in West Texas. Finished middle school there, um, went to India then and did my ninth grade in India. Um, and then went to a few high schools in southern Illinois before graduating and going to college in Boston. So my growing up could have messed me up totally. But at one level, I feel like it also gave me a lot of adaptability along the way. Um, I then went to college in Boston. I was at MIT, and I met my co-founders uh, there, um, and we um, have been together since and, until I came here to NYU. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I, I've moved around a little bit as well, but I think uh, I've actually become an extremely risk-averse person, <laughs> So, which, you know, good, you know, I'm really the appropriate person to be interviewing you today, <laughs> That's I guess. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so you, you kind of alluded to, you know, you met your co-founders. I think that's kind of like a good launching point to talk about your yeah. company. So um, tell us a bit about Tasty Bite, like how that all kind of got started. Or Yeah, yeah. So 
Um, MIT was not a place where a whole lot of food entrepreneurs were coming out in the 90s and certainly not even today. Um, but it does have a very strong sort of subculture of entrepreneurship. Um, and those were early years for it, but it did have a few different tracks. A lot of people go on to become scientists, engineers, um, join academia, but there was a very strong entrepreneurial subculture as well. And um, uh, I, met my, I met one of my co-founders in college. The other three were outside of college. And we all came together around a strong interest, strangely not so much in food, but around what was going on in Asia, in India, Southeast Asia, China. These were countries that had more, very recently liberalized their economies. There was a lot of activity. There were big populations um, and a lot of interesting opportunity. And so I traveled to countries across Asia frequently through college to, to learn about that. And along the way, we, the, the five of us who came together, we uh, came across consulting opportunities, consulting opportunities for U.S. corporations going into India, opportunities for Indian corporations or Asian corporations uh, looking at the U.S. market. And this was a time, bear in mind, where McKinsey was still operating out of, out of a hotel room in Mumbai. So it was very early days for that kind of work. So even though we didn't know a whole lot about what we were doing, nobody else did either. And so there was a lot of interesting opportunity on consulting. We didn't want to become consultants for life, though, but it was a great way to initially pay the bills as we were finishing up school and also to learn about what's out there. Now, as it turns out, we were doing a lot of work for U.S. corporations looking at um, the Asian, Asian markets, Indian markets around food and consumer products. And so we got a little lens into that world. And so the ideas around Tasty Bite stemmed from some of that work. And we then evolved a few other um, insights, and those insights came from observations around what was going on in the U.S. market and food at that time. And by the mid to late 90s, um, the natural and organic food movement had started to come of age. You know, Whole Foods and Trader Joe's were about 100 stores each. Um, you had uh, the first generation of organic food companies like Cliff Bar and Amy's and Stonyfield. Uh, these were essentially started by entrepreneurs who were hippies in the 60s turned entrepreneurs subsequently, and they were somewhat of our inspiration. And we thought, well, there's, there's, there's an interesting opportunity for us to uh, build a natural organic food brand around Asian and Asian Indian food, which didn't exist at all in a grocery store at that time. There were lots of restaurants. Those restaurants were filled with people from all over the world but there was nothing in a grocery store. And so that's how we got our first insights around that food business, stemming from some of the consulting work we were doing, as well as a variety of observations and, and insights that we had, that we had uh, evolved. That's really neat. I, um, and I wonder, you know, so you were traveling abroad, I guess, for this work that you were doing before, and that, you know, laying a lot of times when people think about entrepreneurship and what, what got them started, it's really this core, the idea, right? And it, it probably doesn't happen like this light bulb above your head, and you kind of alluded to it. You know, did that idea for Tasty Bite build over that time, or you knew you were going in sort of with the vision, okay, we want to build something like this, and this is how we're going to do it? Yeah, I think these ideas always <clears throat> build over time. Um, maybe a light bulb comes off at some point um, after you have filled yourself with a lot of observations around a particular topic, around a particular domain. Um, and then strategy, of course, evolves over time for everyone. It changes, your, your vision of the world starts to evolve and change. Uh, and then you get to a point where, you, where, you, where, you, where you're onto something that you think can stand the test of time. But I think that's a, that's a constantly evolving thing. 
Yeah, I think for for me, I always think of it as like, yeah, being an entrepreneur is basically you have this epiphany and it's just like this, this amazing idea, but it sounds like that's typically not the case. I think there are epiphany moments, but you have to fill yourself with content. You have to fill yourself with uh, visual uh, content, interview content, uh, text content. You have to fill yourself with this. And once you've got this content, your brain has ways of working in which we often don't realize that from which those epiphanies come. Mm-hmm. So you were consulting, you were working on this project. When did it sort of transition into something that you were working on full time? And how did you start getting the resources to, to start building this into something, into something that was actually taking up all of your time? So for me, uh, it was full time immediately. Awesome. Because I went to a few information sessions of a few companies interviewing, and I decided I can't do this. <laughs> so, so I guess an MBA is not yeah. for you. Okay, noted. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, um, it was full time immediately. The um, sorry, the rest of your question. Was, no, so just more, just like w- now bringing in the resources, yeah. you know, making yeah. it full time. Yeah, I mean, it's just I think at yeah. the time maybe entrepreneurship, the type of resources that were available, n- nothing like they are today. So nothing how like does that, today. How does that? How did that play out? Yeah, the consulting helped us sort of pay some of the bills initially. So that was a good kind of its, its value for time. So that helped. Um, but yeah, we did run from our landlords a bit <laughs> on occasion. And, you know, when you're uh, that age, it's a little bit easier at one level because you don't have a whole lot of responsibility as well. You just have to make you know, you just to sort of survive yourself. Luckily, we were making food, and so that, that, that sort of took care of one problem. <laughs> um, but no, that was a time when there wasn't a whole lot of uh, uh, resources uh, along many fronts. There were, there were very few grants available for startups, for prototyping, um, <clears throat> unlike what we have today, the Entrepreneurial Institute at NYU, all these different things are out there. Um, there was also not a significant venture capital or private equity community for things outside tech or the life sciences. Almost none of it. Today, there are 400 food VCs alone, for example. So we had to bootstrap it on our own, and that's what we did. So uh, one of the other things we want to we wanted to sort of get out of you is food is a really interesting um, topic, especially now. And I wonder at the time, how did you build out something where you know uh, things are perishable, things have to uh, get through, and you're bringing. I think at the time, uncommon flavors into groceries and aisles and things like that. How did you think about that and how did you execute that? So in order to deliver on our idea, which was around ready to eat, you know, Asian meals, essentially, and that was the need gap that we had perceived in the marketplace here, uh, we'd had to find, you know, manufacturer because we didn't have the capital to put up manufacturing on our own. And uh, we began working with a manufacturer on the ground in India that had the capability of doing ready-to-eat meals in an all-natural, preservative-free environment uh, using these pouches, which are called retort pouches, which were actually developed for the NASA space program uh, back in the 60s, a very well-established technology that today is used quite widely in Japan, across Europe, and now increasingly in the U.S. because there's a very low carbon footprint, unlike frozen foods. Uh, and it worked really well for Asian or gravy-based meals um, because those meals have to be cooked a lot, and the exact texture of those vegetables isn't as important, in fact. And so um, we developed the first few products with that manufacturer, uh, and we began uh, pitching it and establishing it across retailers in the U.S., um, retailers such as Whole Foods. At that time, there was 
a retailer called Wild Oats, which was acquired by Whole Foods. And th there were a large number of mom-and-pop independent organic and natural food stores that were coming up as well, essentially as a counterculture to the traditional large food companies like Kraft Heinz or Campbell's, clean, natural, good-for-you ingredients. And so those were the channels through which we started to establish the brand. So for the first few years, we were a marketing and distribution company where we had the brand, where we were sourcing out of a co-manufacturer in India. And about three years into our life cycle, an opportunity came up for us to acquire the manufacturer in India, which we did. And by the year 2000, we were a fully integrated company from farm manufacturing all the way uh, to the markets here. And that was a pretty daunting but, but very interesting moment for us as well. You know, I, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I mean, you talk about resources we even have, or, or, you know, available today for entrepreneurs. We even have shows like Shark Tank that, like, television right, about right. this. And one of the things that they always pitch is, like, I can get your products into this store, into that store. Um, you know, how, what was that process like for, for you all, you know, going into these more, like, niche uh, health food stores or even going more mainstream into, like, say, like a Walmart or a mainstream grocery store? Yeah, I think... Um, the natural organic retailer trade um, was pretty fragmented at the time, and even to an extent is today. There were over 3,000 independent natural organic food stores. So in theory, you can just pound the pavement up and down the streets of New York or, or, or San Francisco and acquire a lot of stores just door to door to door to door and build a pretty small, healthy business. And I, th and I highly recommend that for people starting out because... You're, you, you may not have access to a large chain buyer just yet, but you can establish yourselves through um, these natural independent grocers. And that's what we did initially. Whole Foods also was relatively young at the time as well. And so we were able to get a few divisions of Whole Foods to come on board as well. Once you have a track record and you have some data to prove that you're actually moving at a reasonable pace in these, in these stores, well, that's the stage where you can start to get the attention of some of the more traditional retailers. Uh, and it was that point that we started pitching places like Safeway and Walmart and Costco and then subsequently Amazon and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, you, so you, you talked a little bit about pounding the pavement. And I remember uh, from our launch experience, we had to go out and, you know, perform like ethnographies, talk to people, talk to the, talk to the, the customers, a little bit of design thinking there. Um, or the users, the consumers, you know, what have you. Brought on by um, you yourself. That, 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 that was, I do, I do <laughs> yes, remember that. This I apologize. We bring this up because we can finally yes. make you face it. Yeah. Great bonding experience, by the way. It really was. A little awkward, but made us all closer, ultimately. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm assuming that that was a big part of, of your figuring out, is, this, is there a market for this? Is this something people are looking for? You know, what was that process like for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was somehow intuitively obvious for us that we had to be in front of consumers a lot and not be sitting in corner offices and not be hanging out indoors. Uh, so I often have this vision of myself as being, as talking and serving food to a consumer in a store with one hand and with a laptop on a pallet with another hand, kind of trying to figure out emails at the same time. And so we realized that we need to uh, build awareness by being in front of consumers. Now, we were developing a category that was non-existent in grocery at the time. Asian, Asian Indian food did not exist in conventional grocery stores. Now, they were still regular foods. It was vegetables, lentils, things like that. But we had to communicate the benefits of them, the flavors of them, and serve them. 
So we embarked on a strategy to do lots and lots of in-store demos and events. We did thousands, tens of thousands really? of those. Wow. And I would go to as many as I possibly could. I probably served a few hundred thousand consumers with my own hands. And for a lot of these career. people, it's the first time they're eating anything like this. Very true. Yeah. Um, and so, and we started to learn from them on how to use this in ways that would fit into their lifestyle. So for example, we had a lentils, which made for a great taco base. I learned that from a consumer and then started to talk of, use that with other consumers or on nachos and Super Bowl Sunday. These are authentic Asian or Asian Indian food items, but being used in ways that were very um, acceptable and easy for consumers. Otherwise, it wouldn't have become a mainstream brand. And those are things that we learned along the way, and that's what made me realize, well, you really got to be out there in front of the consumer all the time talking to them, and that's when you get your best and most brilliant ideas. And so one example is when, and this is a moment when I really knew we had something, I remember serving some of our lentils to a consumer in a store, and he started to dance. And I thought, <laughs> this... This is great. It's and that good. It's, now, we got, we got reactions of positivity and, and passion from many consumers, but that dance, I'll never forget. And it made me realize, okay, we've got something that's really amazing here. Let's, let's, let's build on it. I love that story so much because I just, I think it, it, it sort of ties together how intensely personal food is and how, how real it is in terms of just bringing happiness or like a moment of, of joy to people, especially when they're trying new things. And now being in New York, obviously such a cosmopolitan place and seeing it everywhere, I think it's really neat that you were able to bring some of that first experience to people um, in the aisles of a grocery store. Yeah, yeah, I think along those lines, um, what wh this is way less like personal uh, question, but like, what is um, what was like the R and D process like for this? Like, were you in the kitchen, like cooking up like recipes? Is this like stuff that you grew up with, or like who was sort of overseeing that? So as it turns out, all my partners and I grew up with this in some way. Um, uh, one of my partners, you know, we were five of us, so we were lucky that we had uh, a team of diverse skills and knowledge, and some of us were based between India and the U.S. I, I was there, I was in India for seven years and here for the rest of it. One of my partners was our head of R&D. Um, but yes, we were all deeply into it in terms of product innovation and development. Fortunately, food is iterative. And so you, it, there's some science in it, but I think of it as primarily an art and an art which is iterative. And so um, you can play in kitchens. You don't have to be a gourmet chef to figure this out. You can play around, iterate, and get to a place where you have something that's phenomenal. So moving along in the story then, so it doesn't sound, are, are you still, you're not still involved with, no. uh, with Tasty Bite, no. are you? So, no. okay, so you've been pounding the pavement, entered the mainstream, um, you know, what comes next? What are sort of like the, the next phases here? So uh, by around the mid-2000s is when we um, really saw consumer acceptance for this cuisine at a different scale. Uh, the late 90s and early 2000s were interesting, but we were still somewhat of a niche, kind of organic, natural consumer brand. Um, and with a good presence, but we were not mainstream by any stretch. By around the mid-2000s is when we started getting inquiries from chains like Walmart and Safeway and Costco and others. And of course, by no means were they bringing us in right away, but there was opportunity. And so uh, I was based in India for a few years working at our um, India facility um, 
on the supply chain side, looking at the markets there as well. And I came back in the mid-2000s as that opportunity really started to emerge. And that's when we really got aggressive in attempting to build a brand in those channels. Um, and over the next 10 years, from say 2005 to 2015, we entered virtually every major grocery chain in the country. Uh, from Walmart, Costco, Safeway, all the regional players like HEB in Texas or Publix in the southeast or Shaw's in the northeast, Fred Meyer in the north northwest. We then entered new countries like Canada and Australia and the UK. And we went from what was a seven or eight product company to over 50 products across Thai cuisine, other Southeast Asian, Japanese. Uh, we, went from we went from meals to doing sauces and rices as well. So that next 10 years from 2005 to 2015 were this dramatic scale-up period. And one could argue that the consumer had come of age, but perhaps we also got just better at what we were doing and had figured this out by then. That's amazing. I mean, that, to scale up 10, 20, 30-fold over that, over that time period, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of, of some of that scale-up? And I know a big you know, core tenet of, of Tasty Bite is sustainability. How did you, how did you keep a sustainable business and sort of keep those tenants part of it while you were scaling. Yeah. Luckily, um, so the word sustainability was never used a whole lot 15, 20 years ago. Um, but I think my partners and I, we all had very similar values with respect to what we wanted to do and how we wanted to see the world. And um, if I put it in today's language, I think what we were always doing constantly is evaluating potential negative externalities that can come out of a business. And I think that's one of the issues that big corporations in America, with all the problems we face around capitalism today, have not done. Certainly in the food industry have not done. We have all these negative externalities around health and environment. That was something that we were just very conscientious of. So for example, we were very clear that doing that making products that were natural, preservative-free was key, and that's what was going to be good for consumers. We were very clear that we needed to move this brand toward becoming more organic over time. And so we started working with organic, we started working with farmers on the ground in India to train them in organic practices. And we had 23-acre farm of our own, which we use as an organic demonstration farm. Um, or from an energy perspective, it, it was pretty clear to us that there were things that we needed to do there too. So we, we our, our factory operated in a sugarcane growing belt of India. And so sugarcane's a great fuel source, and we became a big buyer of sugarcane waste, which was converted into briquettes, which became a fuel source for our uh, kettles and our sterilizers. And so just by having an antenna out for what are the externalities of a business, which is essentially what sustainability should be about and is about, was just built into who we were as individuals. It wasn't like there was one sort of sustainability department or a sustainability chapter or a sustainability uh, initiative in the business. It was, it had to do with all things. Or for example, we wanted to make sure that no employee ever had to think about um, the externalities of being caught um, with a huge health bill, for example. And so we made sure that we had the best possible health insurance for everybody, both at our factory in India, as well as our operation here in the US. So those are just core tenants because we knew that made a lot of sense. Uh, and would be good for business overall. Um, the scale-up process also, of course, entailed lots of challenges. We had to scale up manufacturing. We had to. Um, we were working with retailers that had very um, challenging demands. And so, how do you navigate all of that? But but those were really fun. I mean, that was a really fun period. 
Was that, would you say that in terms of, you know, sustainability, you mentioned like the fuel, the sugar cane, was that also the most, you know, cost effective way to kind of run these factories and run the business? I feel like today when companies talk about sustainability and they might have like a sustainability department, um, you know, there's that kind of tension of, you know, we want to be sustainable. That's more, that's a very like long-term vision for our company. But then there's also that kind of potential clash with like short-term cost conscious um, profitability. Was that something that you all were wrestling with as well? Or was this kind of just like, that's the best way to do it. That's how we want to operate. Yeah, I think uh, we were always wrestling with these things. Um, But if you're thinking long term, so we ran this business for 20 years. If you're thinking long term, you'll always make the decision based on what's the best way to do it, even if it costs a little bit more at sometimes. In some cases it did, in some cases it didn't. But I think if you're taking a long-term horizon, it'll be innate to you almost to take that road. I think one of the problems in, certainly I see this across large food companies today, is are locked into business models where um, the cost differential of doing something sustainable is so dramatic, they just can't get out of that. I mean, this is true for uh, coffee companies. This is true for fast food companies. They just can't get out of it easily without a significant drop in revenue or a significant drop, drop in profit. And I think, therefore, a lot of the sustainability initiatives that are out there are extremely incremental in nature. They're very small. And um, they're not doing a whole lot of good in an era where there's not a whole lot of time. So what would your, what would your sort of recommendation be? Like, I, I mean, this is a huge question. Yeah. But, I mean, what, what, what would your advice be to like a company that is wrestling with those things? To, to take that huge, uh, make that huge investment? you know, immediately or? Well, let's take a bit, let's take an example. Um, You know, take a, in food, take an example like McDonald's, you know, uh, or Burger King. Um, Their solutions to, so there's a whole generation of kids growing up not going to McDonald's, you know, and so these are brands that are very concerned about their long-term future because they're unhealthy, they're industrial agriculture, they're terrible for the environment, like they have, the negative externalities are not even funny, right? Um, And so what is their choice? Their choice is to make incremental changes. Like in the case of McDonald's, it's all-day breakfast. That's their answer to this massive problem, which is all-day breakfast. Drives up revenues in the short term, Mm -hmm. uh, gets the CEO some brownie points in the short term, works. But you have a 10, 15-year problem here, which is this brand may cease to exist because of its issues. And um, what I think a bold CEO would do is to bring shareholders to the table and say, here's my plan. Um, It's going to take 10 years, maybe 15 years. We may have to take a short-term revenue dip, but here's my plan. Are you in? Are you out? If you're not, that's fine, but it's worth a shot. And I think those are the kinds of things that need to get done because in a a business like that, um, the whole business model is wound up in a way where it can't be uh, it can't be, it, it, it cannot be sustainable. So for example, the McDonald's restaurant is a mini factory that is designed to source from frozen food factories, making really cheap patties that are sourced from industrial farms. So this whole thing is broken. So it's going to take a complete overhaul of that supply chain to make any fundamental change. So everything you see out of those brands is extremely incremental. But if they really wanted to address the problems of tomorrow and have a brand that's going to survive the next 50 years, that's what they should be doing. I, do you, I mean, do you think that there's sort of a, uh, 
it feels like it almost starts at the um, sort of consumer or the shareholder mindset where it feels like people are, or, or companies are really incentivized to focus on short-term goals, profitability, and that things need to change in terms of like a long-term vision for these changes to be made. Yeah, and that is the core of it. And I think there's some there's some early discussion around short-termism versus long-termism in the shareholder community. You see people like Warren Buffett making points around that as well uh, these days. Um, having said that, most of the incentive structures around CEOs are based on short-term stock gains. Mm -hmm. And right. so if that doesn't change, then there's going to be then there's not going to be um, real overhauls of these systems. But I think if that did change, and that's really the key, you'll see CEOs say, yeah, I want to do something that's meaningful. It'll give me purpose. It'll maybe take longer, but let's go for it. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Thanks for, for sharing about that. I want to keep us moving and the Tasty Bites story. So 20 years down the road, you've scaled up. There's a lot of uh, food now going out through retailers. What prompted you your group of founders to think about selling? What did that look like? And sort of that process, talk, talk us through it. I think it was very gradual and organic. Um, and we didn't build the business to sell it. We stuck with it for many, many years. I think once that sort of 18, 19 year mark started uh, coming around, we thought this could be an interesting time for us to find a partner to take this forward. Um, we had also brought on board some private equity, but later in our life cycle, in 2008 and 2010, so much later. And so um, we had a responsibility to those shareholders to find them an exit as well. That is, of course, their business model. And so we had to make a decision on what that um, exit would be. Um, and we thought partnering with a strategic would make a lot of sense. And um, so we went a very classical route. We found an investment bank to help us with that process. And we went through a full-blown um, process to find the right cultural fit for the business. But I would say the process of thinking that through was, was organic. It was not um, something that we had set out to do necessarily from day one. It evolved. And I think we were all at life stages where um, it made sense for us to find the next generation of talent for this, um, as well as new things for us to do. How did you end up uh, ultimately finding the partner to sell to? Who were they and how did that work out? So Mars, um, a, a company best known for their confectionery, of course, mm -hmm. but I believe their biggest business is actually pet food. Um, and they also have a, a, a very interesting food business as well, uh, is the business that acquired um, Tasty Bite. And Mars was very interesting to us because they were a a company that they're, they're a company that's an all family run, family owned business. And one of their values, which really stuck out to me and to the rest of us, which is so different than other companies, um, is that is freedom. And in their case, they meant freedom from external shareholders. And so we talk about long termism versus short termism, right? Here's a business that has the, a family business that has the um, freedom to think 30, 50, 100 years into the future. Um, whereas a business like Kraft Heinz doesn't. And we've seen what happened to Kraft Heinz. Like Kraft Heinz, 3G, that's the owner of the business. Uh, Short-termism, cut costs, cut costs, cut costs in an environment where the consumer's changing dramatically. And they take this massive hit on market cap just the past one year. Um, because shareholders realize like this is not going anywhere. Um, 
Mars is a business which has the wherewithal to think long term. And in 2017, when they acquired Tasty Bite, they also acquired a big stake in Kindbar, and they really got into the game of um, supporting healthy food businesses um, and the future of healthy food. And so it was it was really clear to us, given their values, given their long-term orientation, their ability to be long-term, and the fact that they had a really fantastic reputation around um, how they work with their people, um, that they have they had every incentive uh, to treat the brand with the same care, if not better care, than we had, and that is that and that is that has played out. That's amazing. Um, was it difficult uh, letting go? I mean, I know it's twenty years on leading a company, seeing it from its infancy to the scale that you achieved is kind of it's a huge scale for now the era of. Uh, two to three year, ten year CEOs yeah. of tech companies. Yeah. So, uh, what was that like? Finally, finally seeing this through to the end, and 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 how'd that feel? I think the hardest part is obviously the teams that you've worked with, and parting ways, even though you remain friends, but not working together anymore. That's the hardest part. Um, letting go outside of that also was very organic and gradual for us because we had a period of transition. The number of going away parties were very large. <laughs> and so it all felt like, okay, it's time. <laughs> um, but uh, others, you know, different people have different reactions to these things. I think for us, it was luckily a very gradual process as well. I like that uh, even letting go of the company was organic. <laughs> I, I apologize for that. That was terrible. No, that was great. <laughs> Every step it has been organic. organic yeah. all the way. I know. Yeah, exactly. It's just so so yeah. true to the core. Um, were you? Were you? I mean, was there any like concern? And I, I'm not sure if this was ever like explicitly part of like the company's vision of being like a sustainable, like you know, sort of organic company. But was was that something that you were like? discussing with Mars, like, was that like contingent to the sale that they kind of like keep these values for this product and sort of for this product line? Luckily, it didn't even need to be because Mars, um, like many acquirers today, not all, but many um, get it. And, you know, the consumer has shifted. There's no going backwards. Mm -hmm. And um, they had a good track record already of, uh, of managing these transitions very well. So that was not a concern for us. Um, I think you there there are companies who try to stipulate certain things, and one could try, but I don't think those stand the test of time. You have to have alignment, um, fundamental value alignment, and if that value alignment is there, it'll naturally happen. I, I think legal agreements for these kinds of things never work best. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd love to, to kind of shift this now to talking a little bit about what you're doing today yeah. um, and talk a little bit about the future of food. So it sounds like since, you know, um, since Tasty Bite, you've really gotten into the sort of the, the food world. I mean, you've, you've been sharing your knowledge already. But where, where do you where do you see things going? I mean, we see Mahesh and I were talking about this. I mean, we see these these trends sort of emerging and maybe I don't know if you want to call them fads, but, you know, what's. What's real out there? Like, is is you know, you, we saw in our, our pre notes, you know, this everyone's doing this like fake meat. Right. Is that is that is that a real thing? Is that like how do you how do you see that? Is that the there's future? Beyond Meat? There's yeah, there's endless endless food, and and there's all of these. Yeah, it's like Henry said, basically fads, I guess you could say. And yeah, what what's your take on it? What's yeah, what's hot now versus what could work? So. Um, Along this journey of Tasty Bite, you know, when you're at every single trade show, meeting up with so many other companies, seeing what's out there, um, 
food, like so many things in this society, um, uh, can be very faddish. And of course, a lot of people looking for a quick buck, a quick entrepreneurial opportunity, and so on. Um, and food became really hot the past 10 to 15 years because there's a perception, which is true, that the food system is broken, that health outcomes are getting worse, environmental outcomes are getting worse. So everyone is trying to figure out, well, what's that big idea, given the consumer interest in this, that I can jump on the bandwagon of? And uh, at various points in history, that has changed. There was one point where everything was Atkins carb-free. Um, then protein became hot. You have paleo. And there's all these trends and fads which exist. Um, but I think there's some core truths and there's some core things that that come and go, and there's some things that'll always be there. Um, you know, to be reductionist in an approach to food will never work. To say, all I need is vitamin D, that's what I'm missing, that's never going to work. Or protein, that's what I'm missing, that's never going to work. Because the body is significantly more complex than that and has co-evolved um, with other species over millions of years and has a billions of years of history before that where the way our metabolic pathways work is far more complex than, oh, I'm deficient in this or I'm surplus in that. And then when you have whole foods, they, um, the compounds within those whole foods um, interact with each other as you consume them as well. And so it's complicated. So eating whole foods, there's a truth around eating whole foods, like uh, a whole apple versus something that's been heavily processed. Um, or a, uh, a, a, a grass-fed piece of beef versus um, something that's been industrially produced. They're very different in how they behave in your body. Um, having, so, now, so, so that's, I think, the core. Eating whole foods is going to be key. Taking a reductionist approach is never going to work from a, from a human nutrition perspective. But there's this perception that there's a quick buck to be made around that. Um, now, the fake meat phenomenon, just to address that in particular, is centered around this idea that um, there's a very big carbon footprint around uh, livestock farming and so on, which is indeed true. And so you have a bunch of entrepreneurs who've come, uh, uh, who've come into being around creating a product that tastes exactly like that, but is plant-based. Now, it does solve the environmental problem to an extent. It is better than livestock farming from a carbon footprint point of view. That is true. It is not necessarily better from a health perspective. And in fact, might even be worse in some ways. We just right. don't know. Yeah. And so there are no quick fixes around this. And I think these, these solutions are interesting, certainly. But if we think there's going to be a quick fix to something, chances are we're wrong because there's, there's, there's probably some other negative externality. If you switched all your meat consumption to Impossible Burgers or Beyond Meat Burgers, there's a chance that there's going to be another health issue um, that's going to that's gonna come down the pike that becomes a crisis for the country as well. Yeah, it kind of reminds, uh, reminds me a bit. We were chatting about this a little bit. It was not quite the same analogy, but kind of the jewel phenomenon, right? Like it, something <laughs> switching in that's like a bit different, and then you don't really realize that, oh, there are some other externalities here that like it came too quick and was not really studied. <laughs> yeah, if uh, fake meat is like the jewel of food, <laughs> it's kind of weaning you off of cigarettes, but it might not be better for you, and like, no one really knows. I think that's a really interesting analog there. <laughs> Um, it's trouble, you know, and I think that the, what we need to do is we need to find a sustainable way of living that has balance 
regardless of what we do, whether it's the way, whether it's the way we consume meat, the way we consume almonds, the way we consume vegetables, um, it's got to be balanced. I think what happens is if we look for if we look to solve anything with extremes, we cause other negative externalities. And um, so for me, my interest in food is around, uh, and sorry, I may be preempting another question here, but you know, my interest is what are these big verticals which are causing the bulk of our health outcomes, the bulk of our environmental problems? And these verticals are fast food, they're soda, they're confectionery, they're industrial agriculture. You can look at a few verticals and, and find the bulk of the cause around our health outcomes and our environmental outcomes that we have today. And so I've, rather than sort of proliferating too widely, what I've decided to do in sort of board roles or investor roles, um, I of course teach here full time, but uh, in my board roles, I've decided to focus on businesses that I believe have unique and fresh business models that can reinvent those industries. Um, in fast food, in confectionery, in industrial agriculture, and so on. Because I think some of that change is going to have to come from the outside because the big companies are locked into business models which don't permit them to, to change more than incrementally. Yeah. W would these be like, um, I don't know, like, like, like competitors to yes. those companies? Or would they be like suppliers in the way that, like would it be a competitor to the supplier, like the person who supplies all the potatoes to McDonald's, like someone who maybe does that a little differently. So competitors, I think we need new alternatives. Food is right now a bit of an oligopoly. You drive down the lone American highway, you have McDonald's and Burger King. There isn't a healthy food option on that highway. And there's an opportunity for one, both from a consumer perspective, as well as from a, what the planet needs. Um, so for example, I'm on a board of a company called Every Table, which is based in Southern California, which is a very interesting and, uni and unique business model for delivering what is a high quality, healthy bowl meal, sweet green quality at five to $7 um, in a profitable way. Now they have had to rethink everything in that business model, uh, the way they produce, the way they distribute, the, um, uh, the kind of real estate they source. Um, everything's totally different than how McDonald's would function. But it's necessary. We need alternatives. We need competitive alternatives to what's out there. So for me, it's what are those competitive alternatives in each of these verticals? But, but I mean that the, the 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 I feel like in order for for you to achieve scale with something like that, that's where like I guess maybe it's a shortcut, but that's where the process stuff comes into play, right? I mean, I mean, I guess this is going to your your expertise with Tasty Bite is being able to scale, but kind of maintain that that whole food that sort of like um, still still something that's good for you, not processed. So like, what, what do those challenges look like today? Is that something that people can achieve or are things going to become more like localized, do you think? So it's a really important question because certainly over the past century, scale has come through industrial efficiency, which meant more processed and therefore less healthy. Indeed, there's more complexity. It's not going to be as simple. But yes, scale is possible. And I think that's the beauty of where technology exists today, where we do have technology today that will permit some of that complexity. Um, so, for example, um, there's another company that I'm on the board of in Boston called Clover, um, and it's a it's an all vegetarian uh, restaurant chain in Boston. Now, the founder knew that in order to compete with fast food with something vegetarian, it has to taste totally amazing. In order to taste totally amazing, not only would he need amazing recipes, but he would have to source local and seasonal to get the best quality carrots or the best quality Brussels sprouts. 
um, in season. Now, that's complicated from a supply chain perspective to do. But fortunately, uh, there exists technology, and he developed new technology to be able to switch his supply chain at will, whereby the entire system from menu to accounting system could switch and manage that complexity. So yes, it's harder to scale, it's more complex, but you have to build and leverage technology to do that, and that's the only way forward. Is this how you see what used to be a trade-off between healthy food and expensive food now become maybe less of a trade-off, this technology enabling something to be healthy, to be actually accessible? I think that's one of the big struggles now about healthy food is that it's just not in the places it needs to be, and, and the people who need it most can't, can't afford it. So how does that, that trade-off feel now? Yes, I think technology will help a lot. Um, having said that, we just need to rebuild the supply chain. I'll give you a very simple way of looking at it. America is probably one of the only countries in the world where uh, the cheapest food is the unhealthiest. The cheapest food in India, the cheapest food in China, the cheapest food in Ghana is the healthiest. Kellogg's is the most expensive. And so America just never built a fresh food supply chain. America built an industrial food supply chain. If Americans were to eat per USDA guidelines, America would need to grow 70% more vegetables. So I'd urge every Stern student just to become a farmer, this phenomenal business opportunity. Yeah. yeah. You, you just blew my mind with that fact. It's so cheap, true. The you only really country about that, it, yeah. yeah, the cheapest food is the unhealthiest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I think the last thing that we want to touch on, and I think we've like covered a little bit of this now, uh, just through your story, but just sort of like the change in uh, or how entrepreneurship has changed and kind of like, you know, it, it's pretty clear. I, f- I feel like the, the barriers to entry are, are, are lower than ever. Um, there's more support systems than ever. Um, but I would imagine that means that the landscape is probably a little more competitive. Um, I don't know if it's like, you know, easier or harder. I'm sure it's always been difficult. But like, how, how, how have you seen those changes, especially as someone who's maybe mentoring people or teaching people about this. Yeah, I think you you, you said it exactly as it is. Um, it is, the, the, the barriers to entry are far lower. There's a lot more support. It's actually even cheaper because, you know, putting up a website or app today is a whole lot cheaper than it was 20 years ago. So you can gain access to consumers. You can build something. You can prototype something much easier and much cheaper today than 20 years ago. So no question, lower barriers to entry, therefore a lot more players entering. The competitive nature though is, is deep, it's, it's, it's dramatic. Um, let's go back to fake meat as an example. There are no less than a couple dozen players you know, entering the fake meat market. Um, and that's on top of a few dozen players that existed beforehand, like Morningstar and Tofurky and others, which are already out there, maybe not with a product that tasted exactly like fake meat. But the sheer volume of players is enormous and extremely competitive. So to be able to differentiate yourself is that much more challenging. What would you say to, to budding entrepreneurs now, you know, faced with all of this and everything that's out there? Um, it, what's, what's a good way of, of, of carving out your space now in, in, in a pretty crowded environment? I would say something very simple, uh, which is almost just ignore some of the competitive activity and take a look at some of these industries. 
by and large, I would argue that the 20th century corporation, which still exists in the 21st century, is stuck. It's stuck in business models that don't make sense for the future. They don't make sense for the environment, for the health of the, of the country, um, and the consumer shifting. So I would advise budding entrepreneurs to look at big, broken industries and look to invent something completely new. Don't try to do something incremental. Don't try to just look at what's going out there in one particular vertical. Let me just try to do a little bit better. Go look at, you know, coffee. You know, it's one of those broken industries in the country. It's totally broken, and I can get into a whole thesis on that, but I won't. <laughs> but just, I challenge you to look at it, and you'll find 20,000 opportunities to reinvent that. But it takes, it takes a little bit of audacity to say, you know what, I can take on a giant because I'm looking at this whole industry as being completely unsustainable versus looking at 20 competitors trying to do something slightly different and slightly better and becoming a me too of that. I think that's so interesting because when you, when you launched Tasty Bite, it's not like you were going at it with the idea of let's tackle these giants, but it, it turned into that because of the core tenets of what, what was built uh, from it beginning to end. And so it's, it's interesting now to, to think about, you know, budding entrepreneurs um, needing to think that way. That's a really good point. We did not have these thoughts in mind when we were starting. We were getting into a category and building a category that didn't exist. It wasn't rubbing up against major corporations in that way. Today, it's mainstream and big, yeah. but at the time, it wasn't. And that may be why I have an interest in that today, because it's something I didn't do then, which is I want to look at these big, broken industries and figure out how they can be reinvented, because um, the incremental change within them is too slow for the planet right now. I, th I think one one thing, one issue that I have with like for like a barrier for me to become an entrepreneur, besides my like you know super low risk tolerance, um, is <laughs> you're I, here I, now, Henry. We were so talking about know. yeah, exactly. We keep <laughs> putting yourself out there. We keep talking. This is my pitch to to Hans. <laughs> no. um, I, I, we were talking about epiphanies uh, earlier, and I always think of like you need to have like this idea, or like you need to like invent like the car, or like something that like is new and completely different. But I guess you could also just kind of do it with like a different business model. Like you're talking about like looking at broken industries and it almost is like an emphasis on execution, right? It's like do this thing that's being done, but just do it better or do it in a different way that, for example, might be sustainable and appealing to consumers. I think that's fair. I think doing it in a totally different way. But what it does require is looking at it completely afresh and with fresh eyes. Because if you just take an existing business model and tweak it, chances are it's not going to be enough. Um, and so it may be an existing industry and in, an existing vertical, you know, consumers are always going to want convenience and food. They're always going to want to eat chocolate. They're always going to want to eat greens. And so those aren't going away as industries. You're not inventing a new product per se, but a totally different way of delivering it with health and environment and other externalities in mind. But I think it still requires a pretty fundamental leap in terms of how, it's yeah. back to the design thinking thing. You it's know? back Go to at it with, <laughs> with, with fresh eyes, alien yeah. eyes almost. Yeah. And, and exactly. I think it's great to give advice of like, these are the things you should try to think about or these are the things you should try to do. What, what are some of the reasons you would say that like a lot, I mean, it's no secret that like most startups, most entrepreneurs like don't like, they, I mean, you know, they fail. They don't achieve to the goals that they were set out to, to accomplish. You know, what would you say are some of like the key reasons for that? Yeah, I think um, 
The key reason that startups fail is because of lack of a market need, lack of a real consumer need. Some people may say, you know, I ran out of money or that still means enough consumers didn't buy yeah. the product in time. <laughs> right, right. And so usually it's lack of, an, of a sufficient market need, lack of sufficient passion amongst the consumer base. Now, there is this tendency in entrepreneurship to create a prototype or have an idea and then go raise money next. I think that's the wrong sequence. I think you've got to have an idea, build a prototype, and then talk to dozens and dozens and dozens of consumers and do the uncomfortable work of meeting strangers with that idea to validate it and then to iterate and to build upon it. And actually, a lot of entrepreneurs who think of themselves as entrepreneurial don't do that. Um, I think that's the sequence that we need to have, and that will improve the outcomes. We've come full circle back to the, the ethnographies, the yes. importance <laughs> of, of talking to the people who actually are going to be hopefully buying the yes. thing that you're selling. Day yeah. two of launch. Yes, <laughs> exactly. We, we, had the, we had the knowledge within us the whole time. Well, I think we're, uh, we're coming up on time here, but Hans, anything to plug? Any, any classes that you think you, you would like people to take or anything that you're doing that you think people should be? Yeah, we're curious. What, what's next for you? I mean, this is, uh, the Tasty Bite is, 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 is behind you now for a couple of years. What's, what's on the horizon um, for you? So for me, I'm here at Stern. I teach courses mostly on social impact, on social entrepreneurship, uh, use a lot of uh, tools around design thinking for that. Uh, I do teach a class that, for example, goes to West Africa. It's, a, it's an undergrad class that goes to Ghana, and we've been working one small village there for six years now in helping the community start small businesses. Um, not only is it very interesting from an impact perspective, but we as students learn what it takes to start small businesses in that microcosm. So my interest is, is in constantly experimenting with those techniques and approaches um, to building things. Uh, I teach a course on food entrepreneurship, which is how I met Richa, in fact. Um, I teach a course on marketing for impact. So they're all mostly in this social entrepreneurship and social impact space, but looking at the tools um, uh, to do it. And everything I do is um, experiential. It's, this, is a, this is a field where if you don't try to do it, there's no point. Uh, a course on entrepreneurship, which is case-based, is a useless course. And it's got to be one around trying it out and getting your hands dirty. And so I'm enjoying my time doing that. Uh, having gotten out of being an entrepreneur day to day, it gives me a chance to look at the world again at a more horizontal level, um, to work with other food companies as an advisor, to teach these things, to learn from students, most importantly, um, because they have the greatest ideas. Well, thanks for being here, Professor. Thank you. Uh, really enjoy talking to you, learning uh, about food sustainability, your work, uh, your courses, and just being a thought leader in this space. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, Hans, this was super fun. Really appreciate it. This was great. You guys were wonderful. Thank you again. Mm -hmm.